On August 9, 2020, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake hit the small town of Sparta, North Carolina in Allegheny County. This was the strongest earthquake recorded in the state in 104 years and the second strongest in the recorded history of the state. While visiting Sparta, Governor Roy Cooper made this statement, we've dealt with a hurricane, a violent tornado, and now an earthquake, all in the middle of a pandemic. North Carolinians are resilient. This is certainly a true statement. North Carolinians have shown resiliency in the face of natural disasters since the inception of the state, and there are a ton of stories in the archives that showcase this fact. Resiliency is a capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties, or to put it simply, fortitude. Whether it's individuals risking their lives for others, agencies funneling resources into rescue operations, or communities coming together to rebuild, North Carolinians are absolutely resilient. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast sharing true stories from the Old North State using materials found in the State Archives of North Carolina. Taking us through these stories and more, here's your host, John Horan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, the podcast for the State Archives of North Carolina. I'm your host, John Horan. My guests today are Katie Crickmore. That's me. And Josh Hager. Happy to be here. Excellent. Last time we heard about North Carolinian resiliency against hurricanes. Josh, what do we have on deck today? Well, John, uh, the first story we'll hear about today could actually have been included in our previous episode about historic hurricanes, since the circumstances of the disaster was directly caused by two back-to-back hurricanes during the 1916 hurricane season. However, the hurricanes themselves were more of a precursor for this disaster and are usually mentioned more as a footnote. The hurricanes were atypical, as they both took a path further inland than usual, but their contribution was largely in supplying the water, the water that became the Great Flood of 1916. Wow, the Great Flood of 1916. I mean, you know, that, 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 sounds, I mean, that sounds pretty epic, but I'm sure there's a lot of destruction and quite a bit of resiliency. Tell me more about it. Well, in mid-July of 1916, the mountain region of North Carolina was waterlogged. The area had just experienced the effects of a hurricane that had brought six straight days of rain, raising the rivers to a dangerous level. Things began to look grim when the weather seemed to get worse, but no one could have predicted that another hurricane was blowing in so soon behind the last, or that this hurricane's route would take it directly towards the mountains, avoiding the Piedmont and coast entirely. The Charleston hurricane set records for the amount of rain it dumped onto the region in 24 hours. Rivers immediately flooded, buildings and roads were washed away, and the region began experiencing serious landslides, which led to entire communities being cut off from rescue. One of those cities was Asheville. Asheville began as a tiny outpost town when it was founded in the late 18th century, but by 1916, the city had grown exponentially. In 1880, the Western North Carolina Railroad finished the first line into the city, allowing it to become a bustling industrial area. By the 1890s, the railroad had been bought by the Southern Railway Company, which was based out of Virginia, and ran several lines through North Carolina. The railroad served as the easiest entry into Asheville, continually bringing in food, goods, and tourists, who were drawn to the pleasant climate and beauty of the city on the banks of the Swannanoa and French Broad Rivers. As the Charleston hurricane drenched the area in rain on July 14th and 15th, Asheville comparatively didn't receive much rain at all. However, residents of the city began to notice that the waters of the upstream Swannanoa steadily rising. By the morning of the 16th, the river had crested far above its limit, 
and the city began to flood rapidly. What's more, the French Broad River had reached its limit as well and began to flood the city from the opposite direction. Soon, nearly the entire lower part of Asheville was underwater. Citizens were completely caught off guard by this level of flooding and how quickly it occurred. There were multiple reports of people clinging to trees as their family and friends were washed away. Others were marooned on rooftops or on the rare elevated spots that escaped the water. All they could do was wait and hope rescue would be coming soon. Unfortunately, that rescue was far away. Asheville served as something of the central hub for the Southern Railway in Western North Carolina, and despite having multiple lines radiating out from the city, the majority were built to follow existing rivers and streams, so they flooded too. What's more, on the same day Asheville was flooding, significant landslides began to occur all over the region. Massive tons of rock and debris slid down mountains and cliffsides, killing residents, sweeping away homes, and damaging the tracks that crisscrossed the area. Some rails were even left hanging in mid-air after the land they were on crumbled away. This was considered a major landslide event, which occur pretty rarely in the state. Only four or five similar events have ever been recorded during the 20th century, and in this instance, the damage was severe. What's more, the displaced rocks and debris from this event destroyed or blocked off a significant portion of the remaining unflooded tracks that led into Asheville, so the city was now completely cut off. News of the disaster reached the Southern Railway headquarters about 3 p.m. on July 15th, while Asheville was still flooding, and they promptly sent over a representative to assess the situation. That train arrived in the city early July 16th, and it was the last train to make it in there for the next two weeks. The representative, Mr. J.B. Akers, immediately began to organize the Southern Railway workers and other laborers and volunteers from Asheville to be ready when the waters began to subside. When that happened on July 18th, the group immediately got to work, cleaning the mud, silt, and debris from the tracks. Outside the town, the effort was also underway. According to the 1917 report published by the Southern Railway, called The Floods of July 1916, How the Southern Railway Organization Met an Emergency, several other groups of rail workers and volunteers were sent out to western North Carolina to clear the 686 miles of tracks that were put out of service by the storm. They worked tirelessly, moving large amounts of debris and rock, bringing in materials for repairs, and checking the safety of the remaining tracks. Volunteers and community members also rushed to clear the roads as the water receded, and by July 20th, the first road was reopened to Asheville. Just a few days later, on July 24th, the Southern Railway had the main line from Salisbury to Asheville back up and running as well, just in time for the tourists. As mentioned earlier, Asheville relied heavily on their tourist crowd, and had just lost two weeks of the summer season. As soon as the town was reachable by train and car again, they needed to be ready to welcome people in. A newspaper entry from the Greensboro Daily News and Record from July 22nd advertised this headline. Asheville recovering from the flood of Sunday, ready to care for summer crowd. Summer tourists to mountains will find plenty of enjoyment. Floodwaters did not disturb scenery nor air. How's that for resiliency? It is estimated that around 80 people lost their lives during the Great Flood, largely due to drowning or the unpredictable landslides. However, that number could have been higher if Asheville and other maroon towns weren't reached as quickly as they were. On page 110 of the 1917 Southern Railway Report, they stated that it would have been impossible to have restored the wrecked lines of the company within the short time that was required for the work without the hearty cooperation of the people in the flooded communities. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, flooding, you think of flooding, you think of maybe eastern Carolina. You don't really think of the mountains like this, anyway, unless we're making a dam, which you can listen to in, in another episode in another season of this particular <laughs> podcast. But it's it's wild to think rain caused this in the mountains. Yeah, the, the two hurricanes hit so back, so close back to back. The one is known as the Charleston Hurricane, 
Right. And it ends up causing the flooding in Asheville, of all places. Yeah, it went up south through Charleston and then hit just the mountain region. And Asheville, as you mentioned uh, in our story, I mean, it is the city in the mountains. There are other towns in the mountains, but, but whenever yeah, there's th- anything that happens in the mountains, like when, when we mentioned the Sparta earthquake last time, right. a lot of the rescuers were coming from Asheville. Yep. It's the nearest major city. So for that big city to be cut off, ugh, must have been scary. Gotta be crazy. And isn't Asheville in a bit of a valley as well? Like between yeah. so mm-hmm. it was like a bowl. With it was water built right on in. the banks of two rivers that kind of flooded in the middle, yeah. Wow. So you mentioned that newspaper. Is that something that people could come see in the archives? Yes, we do have copies of that newspaper and the Outer Banks History Center also has a copy of the uh, floods of July nineteen sixteen, how the Southern Railway Organization met an emergency. And we have the Western Regional Archives in Asheville. So if somebody wanted to look at some more history of Asheville itself right. and the resiliency over time, I would highly recommend visiting our WRA colleagues out in Asheville. And there's a lot of great photos in our collection as well of the damage. Wow. Uh, that must have been just so surreal mm. seeing that level <laughs> of water. Definitely. But I'm, I'm guessing, based on what I've, I see of, of what's coming, that our next incident may involve s- some more photographs that are even more surreal. Yes, our next tale of resiliency also involves several communities cut off from assistance after a major storm and the actions of a woman who faced her fears and was able to get them the help they needed just in time. So what kind of storm is this? Another rain event? Yes, our next tale of resiliency covers a rare coastal snowstorm, and it also involves several communities who were cut off from assistance after that storm and the actions of a woman who faced her fears and was able to get them the help they needed just in time. A snowstorm. Now, I am interested in this. This is what I was looking forward to from last week. <laughs> yep. I want to hear about a North Carolina snow. All right, Northern Boy, let's, uh, let's, let's go. show you how we, we go. Let's go. Down here. <laughs> let's go. Yeah, so North Carolina is considered by many to have pretty mild winters. That is true. Sure, the mountains get their uh, annual snowfall, but compared to the more northerly states, a few inches here or there is nothing to write home about. But the Tar Heel State has had its fair share of winter storms. The blizzard of 1927, the 1993 storm of the century, the Carolina Crusher of 2000. North Carolina has definitely seen some snow. However, some will argue that none have been more extreme than the snowstorm that occurred in March of 1962. Considered by the U.S. Geological Survey to be one of the most destructive storms to ever hit the mid-Atlantic states, this blizzard battered the coast of North Carolina from March 4th to March 9th, with the worst damage occurring on March 7th, which happened to be Ash Wednesday. That is why this storm is often remembered, or at least in North Carolina, as the Ash Wednesday Snowstorm. When the snowstorm hit the Outer Banks, no one was expecting the intensity of the storm, particularly the combination of snow and wind. Telephone lines were downed, roads were washed out, boats were destroyed, and at least two deaths were reported due to exposure. A gale warning was issued in Dare County on March 6th, as the storm, now a level 5 extreme nor'easter, continued to rage. By the end of it, a new inlet had been created by the shifting of sand dunes, and the residents of the coastal towns were in dire straits. A few days after the storm wrought destruction on the Outer Banks, Rebecca Cullum of Raleigh was the only one home at her house on March 11th. Her daughter Frances was at a sleepover, and her husband had stepped out to pick up a copy of the New York Times. In the quiet house, while still all alone, Rebecca heard a sudden voice on their broadcast system come through, a mayday call. Her husband operated a base radio station out of their house with the call sign Blue Dog 349. Because his system had a transmit reach of 150 miles instead of the usual five, the station had strict rules about who was allowed to transmit. 
Rebecca was terribly mic shy and, though she had the authority, would refuse to broadcast anything on the system. Rebecca listened to the Mayday call come and go and chose to ignore it. Surely someone else would pick up. However, a second call came through, and she realized that with the damage done by the storm, no one else may be available to answer after all. Rebecca mustered her courage and answered the call. It was a man from the Outer Banks, and he was desperate for help. It seemed that no one realized just how badly they were affected by the Ash Wednesday storm, and residents of Dare County had been stranded for days without being able to call for help. The man explained that they needed medical supplies, and some areas needed to be evacuated. His radio was their only way to reach anyone, and Rebecca was the first person to answer his call. Despite her fright, Rebecca knew what had to be done. She pushed down her fear and began radioing others, notifying all the proper channels of the situation and finally connecting Dare County with the help they needed. Frances Cullen Morgan spoke of her mother's story in an interview she participated in with the State Archives in 2021, and she said that Rebecca was especially proud of herself for her actions that day facing her fears, accepting the responsibility that was presented to her, and discovering her resilience. Yeah, that's a terrific story. That's actually one that, um, so I did that interview, and so uh, it, it, was, it was remarkable to hear that story in so many ways. I mean, of course, the, the storm itself, but also, you know, Rebecca kind of standing up and saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put aside my fears and and because I'm sure she thought that the folks who were transmitting, they've got to be super afraid. Right. And so she can put her fears af- away on, on this call. And um, to hear Francis talk about her mother that way, it was really something, really something. Oh, yeah. Do we know from the interview, John, when Rebecca heard the radio call, did she contact the authorities in Raleigh to try to get them to get out to Dare County? What was I mean, what is your first thought when you get a call like that? Like, what do you, I mean, I mean, I don't even know what I would do now. And this is in the 60s, right? So this is. 62, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, if I remember right, and we'll, you know, check me, uh, go to the actual interview for, for to listen to this. But I th- if I remember right, she couldn't get up from the, the station um, because she had to keep the line open with this guy. And so she had to wait for somebody to come back. And then once somebody came back, then sent them off to or either they took over and she went off or she sent them off to get help with authorities calling them on the phone and and being able to call them on the phone while they talk to talk to these uh, to the people on the Outer Banks with the with the uh, radio setup. Wow. I I should mention here, I'd be remiss to mention, um, as you well know, our brave host is, as you've heard, the head of our history program at the archives. And if you've experienced a weather event like this one uh, in your family and you want your story in the state archives, please let us know because these kinds of stories of resilience are incredibly important to document. So we're always looking for more stories like that of, uh, of uh, Francis Cullen Morgan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you have a story like this, you know, I appreciate the plug, and I'll I'll double down on the plug. If you have a story like this, I mean, you, you know, we we use this this the, this information, and people learn from this stuff, and they then can uh, go on and 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 build more stories. So I think it's really interesting that if you have something like this, come forward and and we'll talk. Definitely, thanks, Josh. Yeah, and I also should say, as as I mentioned, and hopefully we'll put a couple of these in our links to them in our show notes. But there are some really crazy photographs of snow in North Carolina from this event and from others. Um, I know that not with this snowstorm in particular, but from the earlier snowstorms in the 20th century, there's some in downtown Raleigh where there's like feet 
of snow on Fayetteville Street, and you see you can't even hardly see the Capitol building from the middle of Fayetteville Street because of the the snow. I mean, people think of the when you think of snow in North Carolina photographs, you think of the iconic photograph from Glenwood Avenue in Raleigh yeah. from 2010, oh, yeah. where there's a car there's a car on fire. Yes. And people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. There's people, are, you know, it's like it's yes. like you see the memes of the Ghostbusters, you stay yeah. marshmallow That's man right. there, and, but that was actually a relatively little amount compared to some of these earlier storms. Oh yeah, you can check out uh, some of these photos in our collection. Um, there, we have one: the Spinarest Beach Cottages at Kitty Hawk. Just after the storm, they were like almost covered with this. Um, we also have newspaper entries from the Rocky Mount Telegram that kind of talks about the situation. Outer Banks area isolated by big storm. So yeah, there's a lot of records here that you can check out about this. I've never been at the beach when it's snowing because I'm from North Carolina and it's rare. <laughs> sure, it would be sure, rare. Sure. But I can only imagine how surreal it would be to be at the Outer Banks. That level I mean, the Outer Banks snow, is a, is a yeah. flat. Well, it's not flat. It's dunes. But it's a sandbar. Mm-hmm. And you're surrounded by snow? Yeah. And white out. I mean, that's got to be so weird a and surreal. A whole inlet was created by all the wind from this event. That's what yeah, gets that, me, yeah. That wow. part right there, when you said that, I thought, oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> they, 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 that's real snow. No, that's yep. real snow. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen on the shores of Lake Erie, at least as far as I know. At least they don't <laughs> so, write about it. So wait a second. You, we impressed this Ohio? You did. You, did. Right. you impressed you know, me I with think this that story. might be a time for a commercial so <laughs> that John can recover. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a good call. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back. Thank you. The State Archives of North Carolina is pleased to announce that the North Carolina Digital Collection site has been upgraded. We have listened to user feedback over the years, and the new improved North Carolina Digital Collections offers easier browsing and searching using facets, more intuitive zoom features when viewing items, downloading materials in a variety of file formats, as well as the ability to download transcriptions. Being able to create user accounts to bookmark new finds and frequently used items is another new feature. And there's plenty more. Check it out at digital.ncdcr.gov. All right, we're back. So we've covered a terrible flood and a surprise coastal snowstorm that did even impress me. <laughs> now, let's, uh, let's hear about something else that's even more rare here in North Carolina. And I think that's a tornado. That's right, yeah. When considering tornadoes, you might think that these types of disasters only occur in the West, within the aptly named Tornado Alley. However, tornadoes do occur in the Southeast, and they're often more dangerous than their Western counterparts. Well, first of all, the Southeast has more trees and hilly terrain, which means it's more difficult to spot a twister coming. They also are more likely to occur at night, or within rainy conditions, making spotting them all the more challenging. The trees that the tornado plows through creates more potential projectiles, which can cause more destruction. And what's more, homes in the southeast are much less likely to have a basement or underground shelter due to the potential for floods. So even if people are able to get adequate warning of a tornado coming their way, they often have nowhere to go. All these points combined can spell absolute disaster for unassuming towns in the southeast, which was realized when a major tornado event struck the small town of Red Springs, North Carolina. On March 28, 1984, a series of 22 twisters tore through North and South Carolina in a span of just six hours. Eleven of them touched down in North Carolina, four of which were F4s, including the one that hit Red Springs. On the Fujita scale, tornadoes are measured 0 to 5, with the four having three-second gust speeds of 166 to 200 miles per hour. According to reports, the F4 that struck Red Springs only lasted seconds, but it was enough time to raise a path of destruction through the town. 
Several houses and elementary school and the first Presbyterian church were destroyed. Power lines were downed, trees were ripped up, and at least two deaths and hundreds of injuries were reported. In the midst of the devastation, the town came together to help rebuild. The Red Springs photograph collection really highlights the efforts that were undertaken by volunteer groups and citizens of the town. The mayor of Red Springs, George Paris, immediately began organizing the outpouring of volunteers in the area, providing assistance in the way of food, shelter, and supplies. Other communities and towns offered their support, as well as North Carolina disaster relief agencies, and the town was able to recover quickly. A headline in the News and Observer from April 1st of that year read, From Ravaged Ruins, Spirit of Recovery Stirs in Red Springs. And that sentiment was certainly true. The Carolinas' tornado outbreak was the most destructive twister event to hit North and South Carolina in the 20th century, and was, by all accounts, pretty rare. Coincidentally, the most destructive outbreak of the 19th century occurred almost exactly 100 years prior, in February of 1884. That event was called the Enigma tornado outbreak and produced the deadliest individual tornado in North Carolina history, which was also an F4. In that case, the destroyed communities also came together to help those affected. So whatever happens in 2084, we can rest assured that North Carolinians will take care of their own and rebuild. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the frequency of tornadoes, while not nearly as severe as this one, has increased in the past several decades. Scientists are pointing to climate change as one of the reasons for the acceleration of the intensity of weather in North Carolina-like tornadic activity. I mean, we even had a tornado in downtown Raleigh as recently as 2015, where we were actually open in the archives at that time, and we had to have researchers shelter in the archives building uh, when the tornado came through on a Saturday. Uh, so there are still, I mean, there it seems like every year there's at least one tornadic event in North Carolina now. Not the F4s, thankfully, yeah. <laughs> not yet. But I wouldn't be waiting until 2084 for the next big one, John. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Trends are also showing that they're taking place more in the southeast as well. So... You may be right about that. A secondary tornado alley, I think, in Alabama and Mississippi and the panhandle yeah. of Florida. There's a name for it. I, I couldn't find it, but there's there's like a name for like the southeast tornado alley that's forming. Um, and you already yeah. explained the reasons why it's even more destructive. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, if you're raised in Oklahoma, you are raised to expect it and you have plans right. in place. And if you're raised in Birmingham, Alabama, maybe not. Yeah. Like it's not, and especially if you're raised here, like Fayetteville or Charlotte, it's not something that you're thinking I'm going to expect a tornado. Yeah, I mean, we do tornado drills in school. I mean, we both grew up in North Carolina. We do mm -hmm. the, the tornado drill. But I never really knew if sticking, you know, kneeling down and putting my hands over my neck was going to protect me from an F4, you know, Ooh. an EF4 yeah. hurricane <laughs> or a tornado, I should say. I, I don't know. Tornadoes are scary. They are scary. They are scary. They really are. I mean, it's it's like if you think about a three-second gust of 200 miles an hour, that's Ooh. unbelievable. I mean, a car that goes from zero to 60 in three seconds is a vast car. And that's 60, not 200. Yeah, 200. A, oh a hurricane, if you have to evacuate, you, you have time. You have time. Usually. A tornado, you don't. But again, yeah, with the way that they form at night more likely and in rain. That seems unsporting. Can't see it over the hills in North Carolina. The tornadoes. Yeah. There's a reason our, our hockey team isn't the tornadoes because <laughs> you know we just there's just, just not fair. It's not fair. They'd be in the penalty fair. box the whole game, the whole time, <laughs> the whole time. I mean, it's it is horrific. But the resiliency of Red Springs is pretty amazing that they got out of this event and they said, you know, we're not going to let it destroy us. We're going to rebuild and you know it's 
very similar in terms of some of the other small towns we've heard about in these past two, you know, in our last episode and today. Yeah, and that photograph collection is really cool. They have, um, they did like before and after photos where they dated them, which I thought was interesting. It, the tornado went through Main Street, so it was a lot of storefronts and like historic buildings that were affected. Um, but they have like tons of photos of the volunteers working on rooftops. It's a really cool collection. And I do want to say that this outbreak um, in 1984, you prepared a map for us for, for in the research for this episode. And it looks like Red Springs was the epicenter of the worst of it, but it looks like there was almost along the I-95 corridor and then a little bit up into the northeastern corner into Gates and Hertford County. But there were tornadoes all along that line, really, in North Carolina. So Red Springs was the worst, but there are some really heavy storms all throughout. Yeah, went right up the coast almost, uh, well, inland more, but yeah. Like from Columbus and Robeson County all the way up to Gates and to Camden. K- yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's a diagonal straight line of just all those events. But the thing with a tornado is you could be living, you know, a hundred yards away and not have any effects and your neighbor's house can be destroyed. I mean it's Yeah. It's very pinpoint like that. Very mm-hmm. pinpoint. A hurricane is much more widespread. Right. Yeah, it's broad. Yeah. Yeah. Broad and slow as opposed to fast and targeted. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly right. So, uh, ready to hear the last natural disaster story we'll be discussing today? Uh, Yeah, I don't know what can be even more scary than tornadoes, but I'm sure there's something even scarier (laughs) down the line. Uh, Well, this one involves multi-agency cooperation in the face of a constant threat. One that is both unpredictable and certain to occur every year. Wildfires. Yeah, that's scarier. (laughs) Yeah. Wildfires can spring up anywhere under the right conditions, and unfortunately for the Albemarle-Pamlico Peninsula, that area has the perfect conditions. With its combination of dense forest, potential for high winds, and lack of major roads, this North Carolina Pocosin, or wetland bog, has historically been a hotspot for large and destructive wildfires, like the Lake Phelps Fire of 1955. Now, most wildfires are sparked by lightning or are caused by accidents. But the Lake Phelps fire was believed to be the work of an arsonist, although a perpetrator was never caught. Whatever the cause, the Lake Phelps fire was massive and is considered one of, if not the, largest wildfire in North Carolina's history, or at least in memory. And it may have been even more destructive and widespread, if not for the organization and cooperation between the North Carolina Forest Service, area firefighters, and local community members. On the night of March 29, 1955, a fire began near Lake Phelps in Washington County. It had been fairly dry that time of year, and sustained winds were measured up to 23 miles per hour, which means that the Lake Phelps fire began spreading like crazy. But unfortunately, the fire wasn't spotted right away, since the area was so large and sparsely populated. By the time a resident noticed the blaze and called the authorities, the fire had grown so large that regular suppression methods would not work. In the Forest Resources Record Group at the State Archives, there are fire reports files that go back to about 1953, and one of them is a detailed report about the Lake Phelps fire. In the report, State Forester F.H. Claridge includes a breakdown of the weather conditions and problematic terrain that led to the difficulty in containing the blaze. Area firefighters and members of the Forestry Division worked tirelessly for days to suppress the fire, in two instances almost becoming trapped and having to retreat. Despite their efforts, the fire continued to spread out of control, consuming acres of land in Washington, Tyrrell, and Hyde counties. Luckily, on April 6th, it began to rain, and that downpour gave the team the edge it needed. Finally, on April 7th, the Lake Phelps wildfire was contained. In the nine days since it started, the fire burned through 203,000 acres of land, causing an estimated 3 to $4 million in losses. 
If it wasn't for the efforts made by all cooperating agencies and community members, those numbers would likely be much higher. Frank Albert, the Assistant Regional Forester from the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service Section, responded to the fire report mentioned earlier and said, Reading his report, it is encouraging to note that the suppression action was well-organized and did not break down into a state of confusion, as so often happens under the extreme conditions that prevailed. Encouraging also is the evidence of help from landowner and other organizations, which is essential in this problem area. The Albemarle-Pamlico Peninsula, unfortunately, continues to remain a problem area. There was another large wildfire in 1984 in the same area, called the Allen Road Fire, which burned 95,000 acres, and another one in 2008, the Evans Road Fire, which took seven months to fully extinguish. There's even a fire burning there now, the Great Lakes Fire, although at the time of this recording it is considered 95% contained. These incidents could be discouraging, but the North Carolina Forest Service has always been focused on improving their response to these fires and learning from past events. The report on the Lake Phelps fire emphasized what was done well by the responders and what could be done better during the next major fire, which seems to be working. According to the North Carolina Forest Service, fire statistics from 1928 to now show the occurrence of wildfires have steadily increased over the years, but the number of acres burnt and property losses have drastically been reduced. This means that the preventative measures and policies in place have been successful, and the resiliency of those agencies have certainly paid off. Yeah, as I thought, fires are scary, and uh, <laughs> but uh, not quite as much in the way of deaths because it's a much more sparsely populated right more of an ecological disaster than mm-hmm. a humanitarian one right but, but still re- i mean they're definitely broad and still aggressive oh yeah, oh, yeah absolutely and you know you're it's a it's the other issues we're dealing with here i have a direct attack on on people right and you're talking about like trees flying around mm-hmm. or in the case of flooding people being swept away with a fire you get the the fire itself is dangerous and hot and you don't want to deal with that but the smoke travels so far right. and gets into people's you know lungs and it, for miles and miles it does around. have far-reaching effects yeah. and with the winds coming off the coast sometimes you can get those the smoke from a place like this in, in a major city like New Bern or Wilson or Rocky Mountain. Yeah, and for 203,000 acres being burnt, that's huge. Yeah. It's wild. I, I will say, as the, the resident government records archivist, I'm really happy that we're able to preserve these records from this DeForest Resources Record Group. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, state agency records often have re- – they're not as flashy as the other kind of things we talked about today. Uh, you know, they have a lot of those daily reports that you that you see here. But this story of resiliency and the work of the Forestry Service and the Forestry Division is incredible. And I think I have to plug that doing research in those kind of state agency records is well worth your time to dig a little deeper uh, under behind some of the, the money or the reports. And you're going to find a lot of these really interesting narratives. And I'm excited that later on in the season, we're going to have an entire episode devoted to the, the hidden narratives in, in another state agency collection. little teaser for later. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Do you have something you want to Oh, yeah. Talk I was about? just going to uh, say it. That, that record group may seem dry, but, yeah, it was actually really cool. They had maps of the area, a bunch of reports. They also had, um, uh, what was it called, forest fire prevention campaign files, which had, like, the earliest Smokey the Bear stuff. Those started right. in the 20s in North Carolina. Which right. was way earlier than I thought. So if Smokey was started in the 20s, did Smokey have a cigar? Oh. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, I'm joking. S- Smokey is film noir? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so Smokey the Bear was not started till the 40s, but there's imagery 
Yeah, they had uh, the earlier campaign in the 20s was really cool. So like awareness of forest fires, Mm -hmm. which obviously did not reach the fire bug that started this thing. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think that's what makes this one so tragic to me is that somebody started it. Like these other events are are natural, right? Mm -hmm. Like nothing they could have done. But it really is dang. They um. They, they're pretty sure that it was an arsonist, but no evidence was able to be collected, uh, obviously, because it all burnt up. But sure. Well, if it, yeah. was, if it happened now, then the arson would be because somebody blew up a balloon for a gender reveal party. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'll, be, that'll be something that people will talk uh, about for sure. For sure. It didn't happen in the 50s yet, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so we've, we've heard tales of four major hurricanes, two tornado outbreaks, landslides, unprecedented flooding, and a wildfire hotspot. But where does that leave us at the State Archives? Well, John, as an agency committed to collecting records and preserving North Carolina history, it can be difficult to protect our records in the state from the risks of storms and natural disasters. Many of the records in the state have been lost to fire damage. In Onslow County alone, they've lost a significant number of records to a hurricane, major storm, and a tornado all before the 19th century. In the next episode, we will hear from disaster preparedness analyst Kayla Leonard about how we protect records from natural disasters like these, how we help agencies prepare to mitigate the damage. Love it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you both for joining me today, and thank you for listening to this episode of Connecting the Docs. Stay tuned for more stories from the State Archives of North Carolina. Uh, I'd like to give special thanks to my guests, Katie and Josh. Thanks for having us. Thank you, John. And I'd like to thank the producers, Aaron Fulp, Brooke Chuka, Shauna Carr, Danny Shirilla, Courtney Hamlin, podcast intern Annabeth Poe, Sabrina Byrne, and I don't want to forget former intern Carly Keller for all of her research efforts. And of course, thanks to the person behind the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dodson. I'm John Horan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season four of Connecting the Docs. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People.